Amen. Well, if you would, please remain standing in honor of the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and perfect word. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. And while you are turning there, we want to let you know that we have new members here at Grace. Al and Nancy Kruger, Desi and Michelle Haas, Chris and Kelly Clark and Samuel Anselmo, so if you see them around this morning, be sure to officially welcome them as members at Grace, even though many of them have been here for a while, we do want to uh, welcome them as members at Grace. And so this morning as we continue, I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And you may be seated. This morning, while we pray for our service, we want to remember Rick Johnson, who serves in juvenile detention facilities, ministering to youth um, in uh, those types of places, and so we want to remember him as we pray this morning. Lord, we come to you and we acknowledge that we too often miss the reality of your holiness and your glory and its magnitude. We see a God that is far too small 
God, we forget that your word proclaims over and over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God, we forget that your word says that your glory fills the entire earth and all of creation proclaims your glory. And we have blind eyes and hardened hearts that miss out on the reality of who you are. And so this morning as we gather and as we sing and as we hear your word, God, I pray that you would supernaturally open our eyes again and open our hearts again, that we would behold the glory of the Lord in a new and greater way, that we would see Jesus magnified somewhat closer to who he really is. And God, we want to see him for all that he is, all that you have revealed Jesus to be in your word. And so, God, would you use this morning to accomplish that and to rekindle our awe of who you are and who Jesus is because of what is revealed and proclaimed here in this place this morning, because of what is sung here this morning. God, we want to see Jesus in his glory and in his holiness. God, we know that in our sin we forget that you have promised that all things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to his purpose. And God, we we come and, and we know that we live lives that miss out on that reality. And so as a result, we live in stress and fear and anxiety and depression. But God, if we could only see as you see and know as you know that every little thing that happens today, that every big thing that happens today, every seemingly trivial thing that happens today, it all works to the praise and magnification of Jesus and to our eternal joy, that you work it all out for good. And so, God, may we love you in response by trusting you unwaveringly and living for you and making much of Jesus in our hearts and in our lives and how we speak and all that we would do. So, God, use this morning to strengthen us to do exactly that in this way this morning. God, thank you for Rick Johnson and for his desire to proclaim Christ in difficult places in these detention facilities. Um, God, would you empower him and embolden him and encourage him. God, would you open hearts and eyes even for the first time among people that he would he is uh, working with and proclaiming your word to that they would come to know the saving reality of Jesus and that Jesus would be magnified even in those places. And so we commit this time to you this morning and we look forward expectantly to what you'll do as your word is proclaimed and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
praise you. We know that you are stronger than everything else, that you've been given the name that is above every name, that at your, na uh, at your name every knee will bow someday. Lord, thank you that sin is broken and that you've saved us, that you are the risen Lord of all. And we praise you this morning and we pray that you would open our hearts now to receive what you have for us from your word. We pray all this in your name. Amen. On May 13, 1940, Winston Churchill gave his first speech to the House of Commons as Prime Minister, and this is what he said. I have nothing to offer but blood, trouble, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind, many, many long months of struggle and suffering. Jesus says something drastically different to his people. Jesus promises victory offers life and joy and peace, and yet following Christ means many years of struggle and suffering and blood, sweat, and tears. But what every believer knows is it is worth it all as we live this momentary life. We learn lessons. We learn lessons on how to, to live pleasing to God. And even Paul told the Thessalonians, he says, we have us our ambition to please God who tests our hearts. And he wanted to learn the kind of life that pleases the Lord. I've learned some good lessons in my life. Uh, how to tie my shoes. How to brush, brush and floss. Um, why not to pick up a dead bee. Uh, how to drive the speed limit. Uh, how to cut an umbilical cord. All the things you need to know. But there are some spiritual lessons that God wants us to learn that are very crucial, very foundational. They're simple. 
but they're crucial to pleasing God. So we're coming to our final message in First and Second Thessalonians, especially in this last three weeks of recapping some, some big lessons. And so I want to look at some simple lessons that are crucial to your life, crucial to the life of the church, life and health of the church, and, and really give a basic bedrock understanding so that we operate in a healthy manner. And they're anchored today in this prayer at the end of chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 to 13, and we'll see some God-pleasing life lessons you know, gleaned from both letters as we seek to please Jesus. These four essential lessons I'll bring out. Uh, and again, they're, they're basic, they're foundational, but we learn these, and we learn these, and we must learn these if we're going to live pleasing to God. It affects your daily life, it affects the life of the church. So by way of review, just the last two weeks, it, we saw two weeks ago lessons for the church in First and Second Thessalonians, and four must-haves for every local church. The church must have a regenerate membership, the church must have receptivity to the word of God, a right, be a righteous community, and have a realistic perspective. Like, Jesus is coming again. We don't have this defeatist mentality. And then last week, in leadership lessons from these two letters, <clears throat> anchored in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, we saw leaders need to know their calling. Uh, they need to display character. Uh, they need to care for the flock and have exemplary conduct. They're servants of the Most High God. They are servants of the Word of God, serving the flock of God. Today, we're going to see this. Believers who please Jesus know God, they receive the truth, they cherish their family, and they live differently. Those are the lessons that I, I was thinking this week. I was thinking, okay, what are the big life lessons that I have seen as I've dwelt in these two letters for over a year now? And, and the first lesson is, is about knowing God. It's that foundational. It's about knowing God. If you, you need to get this one so that you can understand the other ones. Knowing God. And if you're taking notes, here, here's the lesson. Knowing and basking in God's love is the best soul satisfaction. Knowing and basking in God's love is the best soul satisfaction. Now, if you look at this prayer that... that was read just a few moments ago in 1 Thessalonians 3. It begins in verse 11 this way. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. It's a prayer that they would see each other in the body. But what is significant is that he's addressing, just like he has earlier in the letter, our God and Father, our Lord Jesus. It's very personal, it's very particular, it's specific. They knew God. They, they loved the Lord because he first loved them. They were drenched in love by Christ. And what happened was indicators of, of, of love for Christ abounded among them because of it. If you look back in chapter 1, you'll notice that here's what they say. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly, verse 2, mentioning you in our prayers. We're praying for you. Verse 3, remembering before our God and Father, there's, they knew God, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, verse 4 says, for we know, confident, they know this, brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. So they knew this, that the church is a community that is distinguished by faith, 
Hope and love, the three foremost Christian virtues, characterize their life together. This is the first time in Paul's letters he puts faith, hope, and love together. He even says in, in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of everyone for, for one another is increasing. It's, it's proof of love for Christ. They knew God. They knew Jesus they, they knew his love, therefore they love. We love him because he first loved us. We love because God first loved us. They had faith towards God. They had love toward others. They had hope toward the future, the glorious coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. J.B. Uh, Lightfoot excuse me, said, faith rests on the past and love works in the present and hope looks future. So if, if, you, are, if you know God, you know his love, that means you, you have to be a believer and a lover and a hoper. It is evidence of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Like if you are a Christian, you must know God. And I know that sounds so basic, so elementary, but some people don't get past this one. And somehow they just start going, and then they find it tough going in the Christian life because they're trying to live it on their own. And they're not rooted and anchored in the love of God. You must be a believer in the Lord Jesus, and a lover of him and people, and a hoper, that you're hoping in the return of Christ. And, and that's evidence of the, of the regeneration brought about by the Holy Spirit, that he saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. John Calvin put it this way, faith, love, and hope are a brief def definition of true Christianity. Do you have faith in Christ? Do you love the Lord because he first loved you? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And are you hoping in his future return? In the first chapter, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4, Paul and Silas, I just read it, said that they know they've been loved and chosen by God. Now what we know, and he goes right from the get-go, he goes to election. God chose before the foundation of the world those he's going to save, and, and they do this, and we know this, that election is essentially a secret known to God alone. Second Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. But how could they know it? How could they with confidence, and of course the Holy Spirit is inspiring them to write it down, how could they know it? They knew it by their evangelism, they knew it by their holiness, they knew it by their, their testimony of faith, hope, and love. God had given them power to proclaim the gospel, and what had happened is they received the gospel, and it produced in them this faith and love and hope. And you have front and center the doctrines of election and predestination. And some people will say, well, you know, those, those doctrines, they make evangelism unnecessary. Not true. The doctrines of election and predestination don't make evangelism unnecessary. They make it indispensable. It's by the preaching and receiving of the gospel that God's secret purposes are known and revealed. And, and this community was beloved of God and chosen by God in eternity past. They're rooted in God. They're drawing their life from him. And so they're exhibiting a life of faith that works and love that labors and hope that endures. And it's all because they know God, because God shows them to know him. They're, they're receiving and giving the gospel as a community because they're rooted in the knowledge of God. True knowledge of God will lead to a truly changed life. John put it this way, 1 John 4, 16. We have known and believed 
the love that God has for us. It's rooted in Christ. It's not self-directed. This is the beauty of the gospel and, and the doctrines of grace that we are rooted and established in love. And, and some people never get there. Some people say, well, I believed in Jesus and I'm going to go do what I want to do. And, and they never see how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And, and, and what Romans 5 tells us, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that was given us. God's love just drenching your soul. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You get to the end of Romans 8 and this question, what shall separate us from the love of God? You're rooted in God. You know God. Then what's going to separate you from the love of God? And people will come up with all sorts of reasons, all sorts of answers. Oh, my problems, my issues, the people in my life. No. The question comes, shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution or famine, peril, sword? No. Neither height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. No one's coming in and taking you from Jesus once you know Jesus. Because God saves you. You didn't save yourself. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We love him because he first loved us. Go back to the Old Testament. Go back to a place like Psalm 136. 26 times you see this phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. His covenant love, his loving kindness, his goodness, his unchanging love. It's because of the Lord's love that we are not consumed. It's because of the Lord's love that we are here today. We have to first and foremost understand that, that if you're a believer, it's because you've been loved by God. He chose to set his love upon you in a saving way, in a justifying, sanctifying, glorifying way. You're not doing this. You're going along with it. You're living it. You're desiring it, but you're not doing it. We cannot love him unless he first loved us. We would not love him unless he first loved us. You would not love God unless God first set his love upon you in a saving way. There's no way around it. There's no biblical way around it. His love never fails. Rejoice in it. You need to know God and know his love. His love will never fail. His love will never fall down. His, never, his love will never run dry. His love will never run out. Batteries run out. I was using a power drill the other day, and I had to, it, it ran out on me. I had to wait till the other one, the, the battery charged again. The love of God it speaks of the immutability of God, the, the unchangeableness of God. John Owen said it this way, we, will, we are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in a holy amazement at his unspeakable love. When was the last time you were lost in unspeakable amazement at his holy love, his holy amazement in him, knowing God. You need to know and bask in God's love. That is the best soul satisfaction. You're trying all these things in life, and you're thinking, this will make me happy. It's not going to make you happy. Even before you get it, you know it doesn't make you happy. And you get it, it doesn't make you happy. All the things that you try to make you happy never work for long. It all disappoints. 
It's all going to burn. But God loves you eternally and he saves you permanently. If you're a Christian today, you should be so assured. You should be so confident in Christ. If you're not, it's probably because you're, you're messed up in sin. If you're a Christian today, you should be so secure in Christ. One Puritan named Christopher Love said, if the elect could perish, then Jesus Christ would be unfaithful to his father because God the Father has given this charge to Christ to save those he elected, to preserve them safe, to bring them to heaven. Jesus said this in John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If you're a Christian today, you are secure in Christ. Not because of you, not because of your strength, not because of your choices, but because of Jesus. You need to know God. You need to know his love. Knowing your love makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in your family. It makes all the difference among your friends. Knowing you are loved makes all the difference in your relationship to God. And, and oftentimes we will tell people, I love you. We tell people we don't even know that we love them. We throw the word around to make it nothing. The Bible says we know love by this. He sent his only son. He didn't just tell us, he showed us. He showed it, then he told us about it in the gospel. It leads to joy. We throw the word love around so easily, don't we? We make it nothing. We tell people that we do not love, that we love them. God does not do that. His loved ones know his love. If you know Jesus, you know his love. And it causes you to rejoice as a regenerate person in repentance and delight. As Jude 24 says, we'll stand in his presence with great joy, his and ours. Joy in the cross, joy in the resurrection, the fountain of all joy. As the psalmist put it in Psalm 87, all my springs of joy are in you, Lord. As the psalmist says, with you is the fountain, the spring, the source of life. I hope that you have experienced the love of God in Christ, that you, you have this permeating recalibration of your heart that affects all of your life. True knowledge of God will lead to a truly changed life. An enjoyment of all good things rooted in the goodness of God and the new creation. Eternal joy. Christ reorients you to a life of rejoicing and anticipating future joy, and you can rejoice with joy even when you are suffering, even when you're remembering your greatest pain, even when you're reliving your greatest nightmare. You can have joy because you know something good is coming because someone good is here and is with us always. Like, let the love of God do what he meant it to do. Let the love of God do what he purposes it to do. Flood your soul with assurance. Flood your soul with peace in the midst of the greatest storm. Then what you find is you love Jesus supremely and you're able to get through that, that biggest storm. Unless and until you, you love Jesus above all, nothing will be right. Christians, you, you need to get this right. Know God, know his love. Unless and until you love Jesus above all, nothing will be right in your life. 
But when Jesus is preeminent in your heart, you will be at peace even if you are hanging on with every ounce of your being right now. Because you know that the all-powerful one is holding on to you by his eternal covenant. We make promises willy-nilly, don't we? We tell people, I'll be there for you. I'm there for you. Just the other day, someone said to someone, I'll be there for you. You can do this or that. And a couple hours later, they wrote and said, I'm ready for you to do this thing. And I was on a text string. And, and they, the well-meaning people are involved. And the person says, I didn't see your message. I missed it. I wasn't able to help you. I told you I would be there. I couldn't do it. It happens all the time, right? Right? God will never do that to you. You need to know the love of God in Christ. Ephesians 6.24 says this at the very end of that letter. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. And and we we might think, oh, my love is such that my love will never run dry for you, Jesus. That's not what this is pointing at. He loves us with, with with a love that will never perish. Therefore, we can love him with a love that is incorruptible, that is immortal, which is eternal and will not decay. And it's all because of what God did in Christ. Not because of the, the nature of our love is so good. It's because the nature of Christ's love is so strong. And, and it's because of First Peter chapter 1, which tells us that God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance that is imperishable. It will never fade away. It's not going to be quenched. It's not going to waste away. Think of all the things in your life that just get rusty or get useless or are just worn out. But you have an inheritance in Christ reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Hold on, but better yet, Jesus is holding on to you. Aren't you glad? Know God. You need to know God. You need to know and bask in God's love. It's the best soul satisfaction. That's one of the things I've gleaned from these two letters. Rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, even if your heart is being torn out. All because of Jesus. You need to know him. First lesson. Second lesson. You need to receive the truth. It's about receiving the truth. If you're taking notes, here's the lesson. The word of God must be eagerly received and lived for what it really is. Now, I realize on a Sunday at church, when things are relatively kind of normal in our lives and in our hearts, we're like, "Uh uh-huh, absolutely. And then Monday comes. You get to the office, you get to the classroom, you get wherever you're going, and you're like, ah, no. By your actions. I know, I'm living in the same boat as you, okay? But we need to receive the truth. The word of God must be eagerly received, not just on Sunday, but every day of the the week, and lived for what it really is, the word of God. Look at verse 14 in this prayer that was read. 1 Thessalonians 3, 14. 13, excuse me. Uh, 13. Uh, That he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The prayer is that that the Christian would become fully formed. The person trusting, if if you're wondering right now, like, am I a Christian or not? I don't even know if I love God. Well, 
have you put your faith in Jesus Christ who died for your sins in your place at the cross, your substitute, he substituted himself in your place, took the punishment your sins deserved, died for those sins, was buried, rose on the third day, promised to return. Do you believe the gospel? If you believe that, what the prayer here is that everyone who believes that would be fully formed as a Christian, would be fully sanctified, would, would be, would by the Spirit, through the word of God, would be made the way God intends. And it's, it's through a reception of the truth. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, they didn't just put out the welcome mat, they received it into their life, they accepted it, which you heard from us, the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The word of man falls to the ground. But oftentimes, many people who say, oh, I love Jesus, will say, you know, I don't really believe the Bible. If I had a dollar for every time I heard someone who says they love Jesus say, I know the Bible says this, but I would have a big pocket full of dollars. I'd be giving them out to you. To love God is to love his word. To love his word is to love God. It is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. By it you are warned. Through it you are grown. In it you see the glory of Christ, the magnificent glory of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. And in there is your delight even in your darkest night. What did he say in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 8? The word sounded forth from you, believers. Good job, thumbs up, but it wasn't you. The word was sounding forth from you like a sonic boom with reverberation. The ripples were going out and it was affecting people's lives because they heard the gospel and they believed the gospel and they loved Jesus because he first loved them and then they went on in faith and hope. In the book of Acts, in chapter 12, it says the word increased and multiplied. The Spirit of God is using the Word of God to save and to sanctify as He wills. In Acts 19, it says the Word continued to increase and prevail mightily. The Word of God does the work. But what happens to us? What happens to us on, on Monday morning? What happens to us on Sunday afternoon? What happens to me? What happens is that we leak. We leak the word of God. Don't ever say, I only need this one little verse on a piece of paper and I'm all good. I check off my box, I'm good. No, you're not. It's not enough. You need the word more than you're getting. You need to live it more than you're, you're living it. So do I. You ever had a slab leak at your house? Show of hands, ever have a slab leak? Everyone's like shy to get, I see those hands. That means that you had months and months of joy. See, the slab leak started with the drip. You didn't see it. It was just happening somewhere you couldn't see, in a wall or below the slab, and, and, and it was detected after considerable damage had been done. And there was calcification and corrosion and destruction, and it wasn't a little thing. It starts small, and it can ruin a home. Well, what about the the leaking of the word of God from your heart and my heart, and we need to be filled and refilled often because we leak and we are broken jars of clay and we have this treasure in, in earthen vessels and we need God to remake us and renew us and restore us. And the unbeliever is blind to that, cannot see the glory of Christ in the word, but the believer beholds the glory of Christ in the word and is changed. 
On October 6, 1536, William Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. His final words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. We should be praying this prayer. Open my eyes, Lord, to see wonderful things in your word. If you say you love Jesus, you must love his word, and, and you must receive the truth. That the, the word must be eagerly received and lived for what it really is. And if you are resisting the word, you are not receiving the word. You must listen to the word of God. Unless and until you love the word of God more than any other voice or thought, you will be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. Stop listening to your silly podcasts. Stop listening to all the things that you do all day long and then you check off a box to say you read a verse. There's good podcasts out there. We have three from our church. I think they're good. But you need the Bible. Open up your Bible. Don't say I got enough. Don't say I know enough. You don't. I don't. The consequences of ignoring God's word are, are, might not be as shocking as what happened in 1 Kings 13 or Acts 5, but I'm telling you right now, they are real and appropriate nonetheless. It might feel like in your life the light of the word of God has been eclipsed by all your problems. Or the darkness of these days, the darkness of your own heart, but what we know from the word of God is victory is sure. Jesus gave his word to his blood-bought bride. And we are united by an empty tomb, and by a promise. So you have to stay thirsty for living water. You have to stay hungry for the bread of life, daily bread. You have to long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you would grow in respect to salvation. You know, when we're eating food, we sometimes eat alone, right? It's just sometimes it's what we do. And sometimes we eat in groups. And that's the same in, in the Christian life. You need to eat the word alone. You need to eat the word in groups. And the household of God is so blessed when we get to eat together and, and savor God's nutrient-rich delicacies. Uh, some people eat healthy, some don't. Uh, don't eat spiritual junk food. Go for the bread of life. If you are, God forbid, if you are standing aloof from the word of God or, or skeptical of it, or if you neglect it, you don't love it. Someone once said this, uh, many crowd to get into the church but make no room for the sermon to get into them. But if you love the word of God, if you receive it, it means you stake your life upon it on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and on and on it goes. You stake your life upon it and you keep doing that. That, that shows you love the word of God. It's not your own work. It's, it's, it's what God puts in your heart for the word. Proverbs 13, 13 says, he who neglects the word of God will be in debt to it, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. When you love the word, then you're like, hey, let's all get into the word together. When you don't love the word, it's like, can we do something else? Focus on what it says, not what you think. Take it lock, stock, and barrel. Be convinced. Let the bare word of God be your soul's delight. When was the last time you opened up your Bible and let the bare word of God delight your soul? 
Do you find any delight in the word of God? If you have none, you're either stuck in sin or you're not saved because the psalmist said, your word is my delight. You accept it wholesale whether you fully understand it or not. Just don't believe your mind, okay? Because your mind is crazy. It just is. All of us, we, we are just warped in our minds at times. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The Spirit will illumine your mind as you yield to the Word of God and just iron out all the wrinkles of your, of your self-serving resistance and self-willed resistance to the Word of God. Instead of judging it, sell out to it. Instead of resisting it, stay under it. You, you know you need it more than anything else. You know it. If you're a Christian, you know it. So keep going back to it. This is love for the word of God. Rejoice in all the way of God's commandments, as the psalmist put it. As the psalmist said in Psalm 119, Oh, I love your law. O Lord, is my meditation all the day, thinking about it all day long. But how many faulty connections do we have? The internet doesn't work. Wi-Fi, you know, can't get the signal. Well, that's true spiritually a lot of, time, a lot of times, too. And God's not broken. We are. Your thoughts might be hindering your reception of the word of God because you think your thoughts are higher than God's. Read Isaiah 55. Read the Psalms. The psalmist says God has exalted above all things his name and his word. You need to know God, first lesson. Know and bask in God's love. It's the best soul satisfaction. And second lesson, receive the truth. Really receive it. Be Eagerly receive it and live it for what it really is. And then lesson number three. It's about cherishing your family. If you're taking notes, it's, it's just your family in Christ must be cherished and cared for. Some of you are like, well, I love my family, but I don't like, I don't like the church. Well, you, you, the church is going to last longer than your family. Cherish your family in Christ. It, your, the church must be cherished and cared for. Here's what it says in... In verse 12 here of our passage, so 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. You see this? That God would do it. The prayer is that God would make you increase and abound in love for one another. Literally cause you to flood the banks with blessing and love to one another. It literally increase to overflowing for love. I mean, but you're like, well, there's so many people I don't like. Well, you know, they might not like you either because you're, you're annoying sometimes. And, 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 and the thing is, and I said it last week, one of the services, I can't remember. If you're in a group and there's some people that bug you and you think, I'm getting out of the group because that person bugs me, stay in that group. You need to be in that group. Iron needs to sharpen iron in that group. You need to learn from the people in your group. Stop running from your issues and from your own pathology. Just let love flood and overflow the banks. This is talking about the nature and importance of the church. When he says, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Now there is a remarkably beautiful portrayal of the church in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. It's the startling beauty that defeats disunity. And these were people that had been only been Christians for a couple months. Can you imagine we're not talking people that have known the Lord for 20 years. We're not talking about people that are seasoned. You know how many people I run into that have been a believer for, a, quote unquote, a long time and just don't even know how to love others in the body of Christ because their hearts are just so self-willed and they're always mad at somebody. Here is this remarkable portrayal 
of, of life in Christ with brand new baby Christians. He says in, in chapter one, verse two, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. We know that God has chosen you. They were freshly saved from Judaism or paganism. Their Christian convictions had just recently been adopted. They had been harshly tested by persecution. They were in the middle of it. And guess what? They weren't wobbly, and they weren't falling apart. And I run into so many people that should, have know, should know better, and they're wobbly and falling apart. And I, my heart breaks for the church because so many people are in the church that never got solid on the love of God and on receiving the word of God. So there's this confidence in God's church because we have confidence in God. The church is a community that lives in God. So here we have, by the way, within 20 years after the resurrection, the church saying Jesus and the Father are equal, which undermines any false teaching that says that the New Testament doesn't attribute deity to Christ. The Greek word for the church is ekklesia. In fact, if you look at the very first word sentence, excuse me, verse of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, this team of missionaries to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're writing to a church, ecclesia, assembly. That word was used a lot in those days. Chrysostom said it was used for Jewish and Greek assemblies, but there was a distinctive about the church. What was it? Look at the verse to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It was in the Father and the Son. It's not that the church was founded on God or members belong to God or have God as Father and Jesus as Lord, which are all absolutely true. It's that, that the church got its source of life from the Father and the Son through the Spirit. The clue is in John 15. John chapter 15 where Jesus likens his disciples as branches in a vine in him as branches in a vine. Or 1 Corinthians, that we're in Christ as limbs in a body. That there's this vital, organic union that makes possible the sharing of a common life. We've been put into the body of Christ. Paul has said elsewhere, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Almost the same as the church in God, the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, you're living in, you're rooted in, you're drawing your life from God, and since the church is in God, that's where the, our life comes from. And that's where our love for one another comes from. We love because he first loved us. And we're living in two habitats, are we not? We're living in the world, but we're living in God. That's the eternal one. Paul knew. Why would he be saying this stuff to them? Why did he be praying for them that their love would increase? Because he knew the insecurity that this church would experience because they were persecuted. And he's reminding them in their trials your security is, is in God. This is where we get our life and strength and stability. So love this assembly, believer. If you're a believer, love this church. Love this church. It is blood-bought, it is costly, it is cherished. Leonard Ravenhill once said, heard someone say, excuse me, find a church where you're comfortable, which a lot of people, that's their, you know, do I feel comfortable? Leonard Ravenhill heard someone say, find a church where you're comfortable. Here's his response. That'll kill you. Go to a church where you're uncomfortable, where they preach about hell, and where they stir your conscience, and where you have to do some repairs to your own heart. 
R.C. Sproul said in Five Things Every Christian Needs to Grow, when he's talking about Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 on not forsaking the assembly, it says this, if you don't feel like going to church, do it anyway. By the way, thanks for coming today. Thanks for showing up. He says this, it's a privilege to come near to God and worship with other believers. It is also a sacred duty. If you get up and don't feel like going to church and want to go to the beach instead, you must say, if I do this, I am neglecting the God who redeemed my soul from the pit. You need to cherish your family. Your family in Christ must be cherished and cared for by you. You must learn together with fellow believers. You must learn to please God. How does that happen? When you look at 1 Thessalonians, it starts to happen in chapter 4 very specifically, and then into chapter 5, and then into 2 Thessalonians. It's about purity, where it says this is the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and don't transgress and defraud your brother or sister in Christ in this manner because the Lord is an avenger. It has to do with the care that you give. It has to do with the respect that you show. It has to be the honor. that your, your family in Christ lasts forever. That's why it says live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands. That's why it says in chapter 5, we ask you, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Admonish you esteem them very highly in love because of their work be at peace and then we urge you brothers admonish the idle encourage the faint-hearted help the weak be patient with them all see that no one repays anyone evil for evil seek to do good to everyone one another and everyone most of us look at that and go yeah if i want to cherish my family in christ i'm going to do that for somebody i'm going to go and correct somebody oh no no that's not what i want you to think about i want you to think about when they come to you and they admonish you or correct you because they love you. Now, most people fight with all their might and say, how dare you say anything to me? Receive it as a gift of love, even if it's only partly true. If you have a good ongoing look at your own depravity, you'll find a way to love fellow sinners, depraved sinners, because you realize how needy you are for Jesus. I mean, what's, what's simmering right now in your heart and mind and thoughts and meditations and feelings? I know what life is like. And I know what keeps us awake at night. What God wants for us is rejoicing, regenerate repentance. That your body, you would, you would say, I, I want to live in purity, not pride. In my work, I want to work hard. I want to have peace and unity versus unrest and division. I don't want to live in anger and resentment. I don't want to be trapped in pornography. I don't want to have my phone be my, be my master. You think about your phone. If you're glued to it in social settings, something's wrong. You ever see a group where everyone's looking at their phones and they're quote unquote together? No. If you're glued to the screen, you're saying to people, you're less important to me than this. I'm more important. Now, it could just be your thoughts. It could just be your anger. It could be something else. Puritan William Grinnell said, Pride loves to climb up, not as Zacchaeus to see Christ, but to be seen. Francis Schaeffer said, What divides and severs and can leave bitterness lasting 20, 30, 40 years are the bitter things said by Christians to each other. There are consequences for not cherishing and caring for the church. Fellowship is hindered, lives are damaged, and God avenges. You need to love by sharing the word of God and your own life. 
the word of God arbitrates between truth and error. Um, you know, uh, you might use a faulty test gauge for something, but the word of God will never lead you astray. The word at work prevails mightily over sin and division. You know, another thing you can do is say, you know what, I'm gonna serve and I'm not gonna always pick. I'm just gonna, just gonna pray for people and just find what God made me to do and just serve the Lord in some way. But like a barrier, sometimes your thoughts get in the way, sometimes your phone gets in the way, sometimes your lust gets in the way, sometimes your wandering mind gets in the way. You wanna rejoice in growth, in grace, be set free by the truth, to serve the truth, then you need to know God and receive the truth and then cherish your family in Christ. Last idea, last lesson is about living differently. If you're taking notes, it's the, the waiting, watching, weary world needs to see something different from Christ's followers. It says in verse 12 of our passage, 1 Thessalonians 3.12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, and for all. Just like it says in chapter five and verse 15, seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So it's not just your family in Christ, but everyone. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 4.12 says this, that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The Bible is, is delineating between a Christian and non-Christian and says outsider. We don't call people outsiders, okay? You should call them an image bearer that you want to love and, and hopefully reach with the gospel. So the Bible designates that. We don't call that. But here's what will happen. You will either hate people or love people. You will either marginalize people or maintain the peace. You will either categorize people or collect friends. You're going to be one or the other. And here's what, what John says in 1 John 4, 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We need to have a passion for souls, the souls of fellow image bearers. David Brainerd was like that. David Brainerd gave his life to reach Native Americans in Delaware and New Jersey. Jonathan Edwards even published his personal diary of the life of David Brainerd. And Brainerd was weak and sickly, but he never quit. It was said of him, he served Jesus with a limp, but he served. He inspired generations of 19th century missionaries. He had a passion for souls. He earnestly desired for others to know the truth of the gospel and be saved. So how will you know if you have this passion for souls that you earnestly desire for others to know the truth and be saved? And I will just say that these markers, these lessons are windows into the soul. Do you love the Lord? Do you receive his word? Do you cherish the church? Do you live differently? Or do you live like a pagan? Do you live differently? Indicators. You know when you're, you're cooking in your oven and you got the oatmeal raisin cookies in there and you see the glass door and you look inside and you see that they're doing well, okay? Um, that's what you need for the word of God to shine the light and even your fellow brothers and sisters to help you see how are things going in your life and what kind of witness do you have? When I go to a restaurant, I like to see, you know, I like those kind of, you can see the kitchen. There's an accountability there, right? But here's the deal, your, your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, your enemies, all have eyes and ears and they're watching and listening and they're wondering, does this person who says they believe in Jesus live differently? The watching, waiting, weary world needs to see something different in Christ's followers. They need to see Christ in you, the hope of glory. You need to lead others to fix their affections on Jesus through your purity, through your hard work, through your fruitful witness. Examine your life in light of the scriptures.
Do I love with my actions and my words? Do my non-Christian neighbors and colleagues and others see a life marked by love? Do I demonstrate God's love to antagonistic people? Or am I the antagonistic one? Do I have compassion? Do I have concern? Do I have care and comfort for others in, in trouble? Do, what's my response to conflict? What kind of questions do I ask people? You, need to, you, want, you want to be identified first and foremost as a follower of Jesus. And then just engage in thoughtful deeds in Christ's name. Maybe noticed by God alone and unnoticed by those you serve. But your carefulness towards fellow image bearers with dignity and respect and honor is a fragrant offering to the Lord. I know that sometimes you, you might be living in a season of your life where you feel like every day is a foggy morning and your judgment gets in the way of, of God-directed evangelism and you find that you haven't shared your faith in Christ or the gospel with anyone in a long time. And all I would tell you is God keeps sending you out. What are you doing there? What are you doing there? There are outcomes for not loving people and people are kept from what they need to hear and God keeps sending you. And you need to see what he sees, fields white for harvest. We serve the eternally faithful one who remains faithful. You can trust him and his love. That's, if you want to be a believer who pleases Jesus, we want to be a church that pleases Jesus, we need to know God and receive the truth, cherish our family in Christ and live differently and keep choosing to love Jesus and love the word and love the church and love all people. And think of it this way. Um, everyone's trying to sell you something and they want you to buy their idea and everyone is trying to figure life out and some people think they have all the answers some people have given up trying but if you're a christian you've been set free to live differently and carefully in word and deed you're not selling you're giving and the world might not love you for it but it will know you as one who is bringing medicine to save dying souls and you don't have to give a Winston Churchill-esque heroic speech. Just use, use the words of Jesus in this world. You'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. It's him, he, who died in your place and rose again is bringing in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So our ambition ought to be to be pleasing to him. And thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word and showed us your love and put us in the church as believers, Lord. Every believer, we have this reality and we want to live a life that is pleasing to you and that reflects your glory. Weak as we are, sinful as we are, Lord, that you would use us just pretty much blows us away. And so we ask for your will to be done. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. come to the Lord's table I don't think you can come to the Lord's table too often we do this once a month this is for Christ's family for those who know his love in Christ in the gospel receiving his word and cherishing his family and desiring to live differently because this table is for sinners this table is for you and I it's from God who patiently condescends to commune with us the suffering servant, the sovereign savior invites repentant sinners and sufferers 
to partake of the table and remember he who is our hope and life and strength. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Wants his followers to remember him, rooted in him. And doing this with the church reminds us we need Jesus every moment. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming your, your death on the cross in our place for our sins until you come again. Lord, you are the risen, reigning, returning Savior. We thank you and we love you. And our hearts cry out, come Lord Jesus. In our best moments, our hearts cry out, come Lord Jesus. I hope this is such a moment for all of us that we would trust you until you come back or call us home, whichever comes first. And our ambition would be to be pleasing to you, all by your grace and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to close singing the chorus. would please be seated for just one moment. I just want to do something really quick before we're dismissed. So we have these new members and we have, uh, if, if you're in the service, Samuel Anselmo, Chris and Kelly Clark, Desi and Michelle Haas, or Al and Nancy Kruger, stand up for just a moment. We want to see you. Okay, look at them. Turn, turn. So we got right there. Samuel's in the very back. Al and Nancy are right there. Okay, get to know these folks. They're, they're part of Grace Church of Orange. They're members at Grace. And... Um, We live life together in the body of Christ. So please stand as we're dismissed. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor.